Welcome to The Edges of Lean. I'm Bella Engelbach, and in this podcast, we explore the human and creative side of lean thinking, unusual places where lean thinking is practiced. We meet people who are practicing continuous improvement in many different flavors and styles. So come along with me on a journey to the edges of lean. Episode 65, Continuous Improvement and Crowdsourcing Great Decisions with Sushant Sagenapur. In Lean, we know the value of getting ideas from the people who are doing the work, especially when it comes to ideas for improvement. But what happens when your organization feels like it is just too big to effectively get ideas from everyone? What if you're just too far away? Sushant Sugenapur is a social scientist and an entrepreneur, and he is the founder and CEO of Sway, a platform for crowdsourcing innovation and making inclusive decisions powered by artificial intelligence. Let's hear what he has to say. Sushant Sugenapur, welcome to the Edges of Lean. Thanks, Bella. Nice to, have, nice to see you, and thanks for having me. Tell us about yourself and your company. What is is it that you do and how did you what was your path to doing that oh long story um let me shorten it up for you um i so yeah uh, my name is sushant i am a social scientist and entrepreneur um background as a policy analyst and strategy consultant uh started a few different companies the most recent of which is sway I'm the founder and CEO of Sway, uh, and Sway is a platform for bottom-up and collective decision-making. Uh, it helps groups of people come together to surface ideas that would generally not be kind of on the table, uh, help them collaborate on those ideas and float the most engaged and most uh, uh, popular ones to the top for institutional decisions. Uh, the reason I came up with this was to help give people a voice that traditionally don't have a voice in decision-making processes so that the companies, leaders, uh, and ultimately shareholders benefit from all of this untapped collective wisdom that resides in a lot of organizations. And I think that's something that organizations say a lot. You know, they 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 will put on the wall that they value the um knowledge, experience, innovation of their employees, but um, it certainly is a struggle to make that a reality, right? Yeah, there, there are two aspects to that. Yeah, I think you're really um, insightful to, to pick up on that. Um, there's a lot of lip service uh, to hmm. this sort of, uh, you know, DEI uh, or inclusion or, you know, uh, the best way to say it is, you know, the dignity of the, those employees, right? Part of getting people voice is to give them uh, an equitable amount of dignity. Um, the, the problem is it's twofold. One is, is that most companies don't have really great processes in place to allow this sort of free flow of knowledge and insight and information from the bottom to the top. They're heavily trying to control it and contain it. Uh, with with the use of surveys and other forms of tools. The second thing, I mean, that's that's an easier problem to solve than the second problem. The second problem is that most leaders are not culturally prepared uh, to hear 
ideas that uh, they haven't asked for. Uh, they're not culturally prepared to be told to do things that may not have come from them themselves. And it's a much bigger problem to try to solve than, than the first problem. How did you become aware of this? How, how, how did you start to see this as a problem that was big enough to deserve attention and uh, essentially to, to spend uh, quite a bit of your life working on it? Um, you know, it's, I think there's a two-part answer to that. I think the first starts with my own background and, and uh, training, I would say. I, um, you know, I'm a product of the Iranian revolution. Uh, my, my parents left Iran in 89 uh, following the, the change in government process and system there. Uh, and so we came to Canada and I just from a very young age became very acute uh, and, and sort of very sensitive to systems of power and how they're concentrated and what people do with power. Uh, so that's what I studied in university. I was a political scientist and I studied public policy uh, did a master's and other stuff. So, you know, always kind of looking at systems and how it creates a bi-directional uh, flow of power. I think where it got really real for me was in the workplace. Uh, I was uh, head of strategy and operations for a, a venture philanthropy center in Oxford called the School Center. Uh, I had a, a pretty sizable budget to spend every year on... Um, investment decisions, um, programs, uh, research, partnerships, convenings, all to sort of support the thesis of that center. And what I, uh, what I experienced was that the decision-making process, while the lip service was it's you know, collaborative and bottom-up and blah, 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 it was extremely top-down. Uh, it, you know, the divine wisdom of what we should or shouldn't do was determined already by a board of directors that sat somewhere else in Palo Alto who would fly in. And, and you were in Oxford, so that was pretty far, so very, pretty far from where the work was happening. Yeah, and this is, you know, pre-COVID where we didn't really have remote work and all of this sort of stuff. Yeah. So uh, it, it was pretty foreign for, for me to have these directives sort of handed from the top down and we're just sort of meant to implement most of them. And there wasn't really a, a constructive debate, uh, an ability to, you know, challenge uh, the assumptions that were being baked into a lot of these, these decisions. Uh, so I experienced it firsthand and uh, I tracked a lot of the decisions we ended up making and the majority of them underperformed. Uh, both in terms of financial or um, programmatic impact kind of performance metrics that we were tracking. And the worst thing was the program managers, you know, my subordinates, the people that I was managing that were supposed to be engaged and, you know, ensuring these things would, would deliver, had no buy-in into the program success because they didn't create them. Uh, they were just told what to do. Uh, so the insight for me was that, mm -hmm. yeah, interesting. Um, because we chose a very efficient, but a very flawed top-down decision-making process, we have these consequences. We have all these externalities, right? Underperformance and loss of human capital. Had we done things slightly differently, maybe we would have had better performance and like much more engaged people. 
And what is that and were these, way? And were these sort of big decisions that once those decisions were made, that was locked in and there was not much opportunity for testing the decisions? Yeah, more or less. I mean, you're, the way it worked was you, you were funding programs. You were funding one set of programs versus another. So Versus another set. Mm -hmm. to, to fund a program, you also need to attach a series of metrics and a measurement system to that to ensure that things are on track and that you're collecting data to report back on either quarterly or, you know, you know, semi-annual basis, right? So there, it wasn't like a startup where you're like, oh, let's just try, you know, five things and see what sticks uh, and do that iteratively. It's like, no, it, there was a very concerted effort on like the design and who's in charge and how much resource would go towards it, you know, and you have to report back to the, to the foundation on how that money was spent and stuff. So there wasn't much room for iteration, I would say. So, so, so input that, because, because you gave input and the programming managers gave input, you gave input, the input wasn't taken. And then the decisions were made in a way that was, um, as you said, there was not, not much opportunity for iteration. So that was really big opportunities actually to make really big mistakes, right? Um, sort of un, unrecoverable mistakes with that funding. Yeah, I mean, if you you have like really deep pockets and maybe this sort of money doesn't matter so much to you or, or whatnot, but uh, I think for the average person, um, these are consequential decisions. We're talking yeah. about a, you know, $5 million uh, US annual budget uh, to spend on different sorts of things. So it, it's it's not inconsequential. Right, uh, right. And, and I think the, you know, this was a center trying to help mainstream the understanding and the application of um, impact investing and social entrepreneurship. So businesses trying to use their business to create social and, and environmental good in the world. And uh, I just, I thought that there's, we could have leveraged our, our brand and our assets way, way more to create the impacts that we wanted to uh, and just, you know, fell on deaf ears. So I want to go back to a phrase you used earlier, which is systems of power. Um, and, you know, I've sort of, I've been reflecting on this. Um, when we, I think in the business world, people who are coming up in the business world, you know, we talk about uh, things like decision rights. We, we talk a lot about employee engagement. We talk a lot about, um, how to, you know, make sure that you are getting the most out of the people who are walking through your doors. Hopefully you're also talking a lot about how to make it a really good positive experience for them um, so that they continue to grow while they're there. Though that, you know, doesn't always happen as we know. But I don't think, and I'm a regular reader of HBR, right? So, you know, I, I we don't talk much about the systems of power and we don't talk about kind of what's happening under that, underneath that from really a, a social um, aspect where, you know, we start out in any organization, we start out with a class structure, don't we? I mean, we, mm. we, we do start out with a class structure. We if somebody, you know, somebody started as a janitor and ends up as, as a CEO, that's extremely surprising, right? 
and that would be something that you you wouldn't expect. We see um, we see class and we see um, ethnic and racial differences among these sort of invisible uh, cases that we have inside organizations. I don't think we talk about that. I mean, I think you talk about it, but I don't think we talk you know, much about that. I, I'm, there's lots of reasons for that. It's uncomfortable. If we're the person on the top or heading for the top or trying to get to the top, um, we might not want to upset the um, the hierarchy. Um, I was I was wondering, this is kind of an, an off the wall question, but do you, is this wired into human society to be, always want to be hierarchical or is it something that uh, we can unlearn? That's a very, very, very deep question. And it's one that I'm uh, grappling with quite, quite regularly. Yeah. I think that, that there, we probably have a predisposition towards uh, some kind of hierarchy. Uh, hierarchy has, I think, allowed us to organize and to move forward uh -huh. efficiently. I think the the problem that I'm seeing is that those hierarchies are extremely static and inflexible. Uh, and inflexibility in a world of constant flux and constant change leads to a lot of negative consequences. And so those hierarchies need to become a lot more fluid, kind of like uh, you know swarms, swarms that form and disband and, and you know there are these, uh, birds, um, the star starlings. The starlings, yes. Yeah, the yeah, murmurations yeah. of the starlings. Yes, the yes. murmurations of the starlings. Yeah, they, they, they. You know, leaders are constantly changing based on the dynamics of that of that group or of that murmuring. Um, I think that we need some degree of. I mean, we need a lot more flexibility in our organizational structures uh, to move forward efficiently. It's that, that, and that is very difficult because we've built systems around those organizational structures that don't really allow that, right? So, so I've had the experience of being in an organization that really was moving very much to project-based work um, and having teams form and the disband when the project was over, but couldn't really figure out how to, uh, how to pay people and how to move people effectively, essentially from one swarm to another, from another, from one team to another. So frequently what would happen is the project would end, the team would be disbanded, then people would be let go, right? And mm -hmm. so one, one side of the company, there's all these people who have completed projects who are then leaving the company. And then there's this huge effort on the other side to hire new people for new projects. And so the ability even to flexibly move people from one project to another, the HRS systems, I have to say, Sushan, didn't really allow that to happen, right? So it was like we the HRS systems were built for a hierarchy, mm -hmm. but at sort of a team-based, um, you know, cross-functional team-based environment with teams flexing and, you know, coming and going, um, the HRS systems didn't seem to be able to keep up with that. Um, yeah, and I, I, I find that... Um that there's some really interesting experiments and insights coming out of the decentralization space, uh, mostly from you know, these 
DAOs, these decentralized autonomous organizations that, you know, once they pitch for funding or, or, or coordinate a team uh, amongst themselves, then there, there are a lot of tools that are being built, like Coordinate is one tool that comes to mind uh, that allows people to self-assign roles, tasks, and remuneration structures amongst their, their group. And based on some kind of consensus mechanism uh, of them just agreeing that that's the right way to go about it, that's how resources are distributed, that's how work is distributed, that's how you know rewards are distributed. And uh, once the project disbands, I think there's uh, some collateral or some uh, artifact of what has happened that is registered on on the website, the coordinate kind of website, and then you know then they earn a reputation. So the next time something comes up, then you know there's a track record of how they performed in that project. So, so the artifact, that the knowledge retention artifact, also becomes in a way the the so the resume of the of the of the people on that yeah on that team essentially, yeah essentially yeah uh so i going back to your question of like are we hardwired for for hierarchy um it's a very again it's a very very deep question um part of the challenge that we've seen I mean, initially when we first started sway we thought oh this is like you know obviously a, a better more flexible uh, and less threatening um, approach to decision making. Why would you not want to have many options on the table to select from? Why do you only want the two or three that are that are in your own mind? And through the course of implementing Sway or trying to bring it to market, we realized, oh my God, like, man, do um, older leaders and not to you know be ageist and stuff, but mm. people from you know the, the boomer uh, demographic. Are just not used to having systems of inclusion. This is a foreign concept to, to a lot, especially in the workplace. And they see this as a threat to their autonomy or a threat to their decision making power. Uh, they also see it as a distraction uh, away from the real work. For the real uh, work, you know, right. They, they think, you know, what could my subordinate really know more than I know about the context of this problem? And it's like, well, You'd be surprised what what they already know that they're not surfacing because they're afraid, or you'd be surprised at the creative solutions they may have that might complement what you're already thinking of. Uh, so culture still stands in the way of of these types of systems coming into place. Right, and that and and that is we see that a lot in lean deployments that. Um... One of the hardest things for a leader to do if they've decided that they want to do something like lean is to take that time to step back, step into actually go and see what's happening with the work and ask the kind of questions that elicit um, creative thinking from their employees instead of saying to the employees something like, well, when I was doing your job, this was the way I did it and why aren't you mm -hmm. doing it that way? Right. Um, and and I, I think it is cultural. I do agree with you. It's cultural, right? But and it's cultural both in terms of the larger society and probably cultural inside an organization that the yeah. higher you are, are and which probably in many organizations also goes with your age, then the more you're supposed to have the answer and the less you the less you're supposed to be asking questions. And if you do ask questions, they you know, sometimes they're sort of faintly or legitimately accusatory questions. And that's that's a culture that 
we're raised in. So you can give people a tool. You have good news. Let's hear the good news. I have good news. So I I don't want to show the tool, but I I sort of want to help you see where we think the world is going based on the trends that we see piling up. So if you don't mind, I'm going to share a couple of slides with you. uh, Yeah, well, we will... um, We'll, we'll uh, include in the show notes for those people okay. who are listening, we'll, we'll include in the show notes um, a link to where you can find the slides. Okay, great. Uh, so I've got it. I'll, I will. I, yeah. Yeah. Let me. Hang on. All right. Awesome. Go ahead. Great. All right. So when we were trying to help some of our investors and others understand the shifts we see. We, we thought of this as like a scaffolding of trends that lead to a very inevitable uh, understanding of the future. So the first really important thing um, to take note of is that trust is in free fall. Trust in institutions, trust in leaders, uh, you know, it, it's really, really low. Uh, it's lowest than and it's ever been uh, based on the Edelman trust barometer that is a study that happens every year. So one in three people don't trust their employer. 48% view government and media as a divisive force in society. Uh, and a number of other sound, point, sound bites that show that this is, this is an irreversible and, issue. And this, is, and this is globally or is this North America? Globally. 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 They, they okay. look at, I think, 27 countries uh, from which they, they derive the barometer. Um, uh, in, you know, juxtaposed to that is decentralization was rising. Uh, we went from a $4 billion market, uh, decentralized finance, uh, you know, three years ago to a $93 billion market today. Uh, this is a, you know, a 10X on 10X every year, year on year. The same trend is happening in the decentralized autonomous organization space. Another important trend is personalization that's rising. Uh, people are, because of the internet, because of our more, I think, uh, ability to curate experiences and, and, and whatnot, uh, people are having much more personalized experience as a consumer out in the world. They can tailor their experiences, tailor their, their shopping needs, all that sort of stuff. And it's sort of a, a winning strategy as well for winning over loyalty. So they're experiencing and, this. And we experience that also in what is advertised to us, right? So it's it's not just that we go to the website of a company that where we normally do purchasing and find that they are presenting us stuff that is similar to what we bought previously. It's also that um, in all of our interaction, uh, screen-based interaction, we, we're people at the companies are constantly looking out for who is this person and what is going to interest them. Exactly. Yeah. Um, next, I think demographics and values are shifting. Uh, millennials and Gen Z uh, make up the largest percentage of the labor force and voters globally today. And they have just different expectations and values about how society should function, how the works, workplace should function. Another important thing you should see, I think this relates very much to trust, is that social movements and social unrest is highest than it's ever been before. Mm-hmm. Uh, Three-time increase in the number of protests around the world compared to 15 years ago. Uh, and this is the most, uh, I think, 
interesting and hopeful fact uh, that's coming is that the guard is changing. Uh, by 2025, while millennials are like the largest part of the labor force, they only make up about 11% of management in companies. But by 2025, they will be the majority of managers and decision makers in most companies. And I, I bet you, you're going to see a completely different set of realities uh, surfaced from that. A uh, different sort so, of power balance. So, so is your expectation that I'm, and I'm thinking about, about people who have for years felt that their voice wasn't heard when they are now in the position of being the, the people in, in, in power, if we're talking about power structures, that they will be excited to hear other people's voices? Or will they be saying, hey, it's my turn now? Uh, what I, I, yeah, my, I think it's the latter for me. I think that they will they will create systems that allow voices to be heard more regularly because when when you've been shut out and, and you have empathy for that problem that empathy doesn't go away just because you're in power i think some people might uh you know we are we are a, a weird species uh a contradictory species uh, uh but for the most part i think you're going to see different types of institutions and different types of systems be shaped so, so these are some other trends that I see as well. I just want to share these to sort of help paint this picture. Like employee activism has never been higher than it is today. Uh, if you look at Starbucks alone, mm -hmm. December 1st, 2021 was their first uh, attempt to unionize. Uh, by, December, by January 31st, 2022, uh, they had... I think 19 or 20 stores that had uh, been unionized. And this sort of trend carries across Amazon. Uh, it's carrying across uh, a number of other well-known popular kind of places. Uh, great resignation isn't going away. People are still leaving their jobs, hoping for something better. Um, you know, uh, disengagement is still really widespread. 80% uh, of employees we say that they're not engaged in the workplace. And this comes from really, really well kind of defined research. And that uh -huh. has, I think we know it, it has more to do with who is leading them, supervising them than almost mm. anything else, right? It's, yeah. it's, yeah. The last thing I'd say is, and we forget these other ones, is that there is a correlation between how much we're using social media and how much that's, uh, influencing our sense of power or our sense of voice and the kind of opposite experience to that when we go into the workplace or we go into our cities uh, or into our political systems. You can be a famous creator, an influencer, you know, someone that's bigger than certain institutions online, but you have no voice, no say, no ability to shape anything in the places that really matter which is your you know, place of work or your municipality or city or whatever. So there is a, you know, there's a weird imbalance that will get sorted out in time. Yeah, yeah and I can, I can see that even, even being, you know, I'm just thinking if somebody was, if my next door neighbor was a huge social media influence and then they said they wanted to go to our local township meeting, they, people might look at them and say, well, what do they know? They, you know, all they do is make TikToks, right? You know, mm. and, and, and so they might actually, their knowledge and their experience might be downgraded simply because of, of um, their, 
their influence, strangely enough. Possibly, yeah. I mean, depends on the type of influencing they're doing, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> if it's, yeah. So I, yeah. I, I just, I, maybe it, it's, maybe we have blind spots in, in the, you know, data that we've chosen to, to highlight, but it does tell you, tell a compelling story that there's no kind of going back to, oh yeah, like all these trends are moving in a certain direction and somehow we're going to be like happy electing better leaders. I don't think that's the problem. The problem isn't about electing better leaders or having, you know, uh, that be an antidote. The problem is building systems that can help us listen and filter high quality ideas um, quickly uh, so that uh, we can move at the pace we need to and we can move together in a direction that's, that's important. So, and so this is what your company is about then is. Yeah. Uh, basically Sway is a, this SaaS platform, this, this, you know, software that helps you implement a meritocracy inside your organization. It allows you to set up missions or campaigns, uh, sort of leadership driven questions that you want to collect solutions, uh, from your staff or customers or whoever from. The beauty, though, isn't it's not a free for all. Anyone can put ideas, but only the ideas that have the most engagement, the most debate, the most constructive criticism. Those are the ones that go to a review. So uh, you get to set some metrics, uh, determining what that bar is that ideas need to surpass in order for them to be worthy of management time. Uh, so it, yeah, it, it's the best of both worlds. It's inclusive, but also efficient uh, and you sort of need that in order to make this work so uh, i'm conscious that with say sort of a a shark tank competition inside an organization which i've seen implemented you know so what's what's the um uh, does this i guess my here's i'll put my question a different way i think one of the challenges with ideas is that it's often difficult for people to disassociate the idea from the ideator right mm, yeah so uh, if the person who has a really interesting idea is somebody who is you know from a certain department is of a certain gender perhaps doesn't you know have a degree you know you, you don't or you don't know this person, which is also very important in um, sort of management hierarchies, their idea, they will struggle harder to get their idea heard. So does, does, does this software allow the idea and the idea to, to be disassociated in some way? Yes, we have a conditional anonymity built into, into Sway. So that means people can choose to be anonymous when they're putting their idea forward. And it gives them the maximum opportunity for that idea to be uh, uh, debated based on its merits, not based on the identity of the person behind it. Because maybe I'm, I'm a jerk in the company and people just yeah. stay on my idea because I'm that person. Or maybe I'm really popular and people feel like they need to support it because I have power or whatever. So that was one thing that when I was experiencing what I experienced in my workplace, I was thinking, no, oh, you know what? Like, what if we could all put our, our idea forward, but it was anonymized. And the ideas that got the most debate were the only ones that went to the board and the board would have to decide, hey, this one sounds really good. And we don't know who it came from, but like, 
this is a really sensible idea. Like we should explore this further. Um, so that's, uh, yeah, that's sort of some of the features that Sway enables. Wow. Well, that, I think I think that's really great because because I was going to say actually some of the 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 issue with the shark type type competition is that the person who is the best at speaking in front of executives, um, you know, has the most personal yeah. charm is the person yeah. who may get further along in that competition than the person who has a really solid idea or, or an idea that it has. And I love what you're saying about the debate, right? Because it's in I, most ideas when they first come along, they I would say they're like babies, right? And and so you can they could they could be ugly, they could be pretty, but you don't know what they're going to be like when they're grown up. And they need usually some care and development and education to become totally. the kind of idea that can really, you know, change a business, give you a new business line, solve a problem that you've been you know dealing with for years and years and years you know yeah you're you're absolutely right i think like whether it's coming from leadership or from down at the bottom there's going to be bias in either case yeah uh, the beauty of sway and this is how it differs from a shark tank kind of pitch competition is that ideas only survive and get to a decision making process based on the amount of collaboration that's happened on the idea so you're going to collect a lot of uh constructive criticism, you're going to collect risks, you're going to collect strengths, you're going to collect revisions to the idea, you're going to collect votes. Once it's ready to go to a review by the board or whatever, those people are going to be able to see, ah, okay, yeah, this is like, I thought of these risks too, and it looks like a lot of people have, have raised this, and it looks like, oh, this guy's responded already to these risks, and he has a good, you know, rebuttal to it, and mm. it's it just, it's a, it's a, it's a much more intelligent way of, of leveraging intelligence uh, to, to help you, you know, do what you do better, which is make decisions. Right. Yeah. And then and you're doing it with the energy from and the and the input of as many people in the organization as are interested and willing to get involved. And, and so what's the impact of that? The impact of that, we've looked at so many different studies uh, and I won't bore you with details. Um, but I think my like past training really helped with, with <laughs> the design of this system. When people feel heard, they are twice as likely to remain engaged, twice as likely to be recommend the place as a good place to work, twice as likely to be retained over a period of time to bring ideas forward. When they don't feel heard, it's the opposite of all those things. They're three times more likely to lose their jobs within a year, three times more likely to be disengaged, et cetera, et cetera. And being heard doesn't mean having their ideas implemented. Being heard means having a fair chance at influencing the agenda. When they feel like, okay, I know the rules, my idea made it forward. And for this and this reason, it was selected as not appropriate or not the right time or or, you know, duplicate of some other effort. Like people are okay with that. Most people that we've, we've you know, implemented Sway with, we've had like 50,000 users so far. People wow. that have had ideas rejected are two times more likely to put new ideas in the platform. But those that don't get any feedback and uh, their ideas go nowhere, um, just don't engage anymore. And this is the standard type of experience in the modern workplace today. 
Yeah, yeah, and it's, yeah. I mean, there's so many people who who go into work every day, do their work, even if they have a small idea about how to improve their work or something else that the organization could be doing. They just they feel like they don't get heard, right? Mm. Yeah, and that, that's very interesting. I know when I was doing, um, when I was running creativity workshops, we would end up, you know, with with sheets and sheets and sheets of post-it notes of ideas to to address this particular whatever problem we're working on. And people would always say to me, um, Bella, what are you going to do with these sheets of ideas? And I would always say, and it was true, is all oh, I'm going to keep them, right? Um, and people were really happy that I kept the ideas. Very few people ever came back and said, hey, I want to see that idea again. Hmm. Um, it's time for that idea, you know, because the process that we had been through of, you know, selecting the ideas that move forward and, you know, everybody had had a chance to give input to those ideas, you know, at, you know, deciding what to move forward and how to improve those ideas. They had buy into those ideas that went forward. They didn't feel like they really needed those ideas that were on the post notes. I mean, eventually after a couple of years, I'd throw them out, but. Um, I always kept them because uh, at the moment people felt that they needed to to know that they were being treated kindly. Yeah, I think uh, you know our our place in any institution is a relationship. Um, you know, you're there's a transactional element where you're being hired to to carry out tasks, but those tasks require your you know these like did non-tangible things inside of us like our empathy yeah. our compassion our our heart our soul our our commitment um a paycheck doesn't unlock those things being treated Not like a human being uh being treated with respect being treated with dignity massively unlocks those things and you know i i think the world will be a much more harmonious place if we have systems in place that continue to allow those things to, to emerge versus kind of keeping us in a transactional type of um, dynamic uh, and a structured dynamic between employer and employee or citizen and leader, or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I think, you know, we, it's, 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 it, that's a, it's an interesting to, thing to think about as we, you know, we continue to move forward, and hopefully we do continue to move forward, right? That um, that that means that so many other systems are going to have to change as well, right? So I'm thinking back to my example of the HR systems that couldn't keep up with where an organization was going with flexibility. I think there are a lot of things that are invisible to us in our organizations and the way our organizations work that as scientists, engineers, um, business people, we don't pay attention to because that's not what our job is. You know, our job is to do, is to do these, these other things. And so as you're thinking about the next generation of leaders, what are the, some of the things, the, the other things that you think that they need to be paying attention to? Oh. It, so it's, it, and in your ideal organization, what would be? Yeah, um, I think coming back to let me let me digress a bit. Um, there was a, a point you mentioned around needing new systems. I think systems self-update. Uh, either they update based off of competitive pressure, 
or cultural pressure. Uh, and I feel like if, if something like Sway is to really mainstream, it needs to prove that the, it's more efficient or more productive than whatever is currently in place. Uh, if that happens to be the case, then people automatically start kind of moving in that direction because they want to move faster or they want to have outsized results. Uh, so our job, our, our goal, I think, is to, to prove the, the pragmatic parts of Sway and pragmatic parts of this sort of bottom-up mm -hmm. decision-making process. And I think you're, you're going to see that emerge from the crypto space uh, in the next few years. I think the volume of capital that will be amassed and deployed and the kinds of things that people will be able to purchase and and govern and and sort of manage collectively using systems like Sway will blow our mind. Like we're on the, you know, the most popular mainstream example uh, was a group of people that wanted to buy the U.S. Constitution. Uh, the ship or the other constitution? No, the actual, like the, the actual constitution, yeah. Of the constitution, yeah, and they turned it into a DAO, and they they raised like forty million dollars to do so. Uh, or maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it was even more than that, but it, several several million dollars to to do so in a matter of six days. Uh, and uh, you know, people are using the same mentality to like buy a uh, a football club. Uh, you know, a bunch of fans that feel like they can run the fo football club better than professional management because they understand the game better or they, they've been loyal longer or whatever. And really, in the near future, they're going to be able to do that and then collectively make decisions on what should the management structure be or what should the training program be or what should this or that be. Um, if these things prove successful, then, man, we're going to we're going to be in for a real challenge inside uh, our organizations. People see that it's, outside of the workplace, this is possible. They're going to start questioning, why are we doing hierarchical stuff? Yeah, and and, I, and that is disruptive innovation, right? That's that's the innovation that comes from the place that you didn't expect. You didn't expect the fans to buy the team, right? Yeah. It's, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're going to pass it on to the, the next generation in the family or something like that. Wow. So, so Sushant, with all of that in mind, you think thinking about a young person studying out right now, what would your piece of advice for them be? You know, you asked this at the very beginning before we started, and I've been like, yeah, on this. Um, I think that they they really need to get comfortable with change. Uh, because change is going to be a constant mm. that comes uh, our way and everyone's way on an annual basis. You know, last year it was COVID or two years ago it was COVID. This year it's monkeypox. Next year it's wildfires and other sorts of things. I think that that uh, one, like, assume that changes and difficulty will be on the horizon for the next 20, 30 years. I think the second thing is like, don't waste your time trying to reform um, systems that are inherently designed for the past. Build something different. Have build something different. Yeah, have the confidence to build something different. And it doesn't necessarily need to, like one of my mistakes, I think, or, or shortcomings with Sway was that I was so 
shy about talking about the the design and the the implications and all this sort of stuff i felt like i, I needed to prove every aspect before i could come back and be like see it works see it's it's better see it outperform this and that and you know over the last few years we have you know data and case studies and things that show tangible proof but putting strong ideas and frameworks out there that challenge the the cultural conceptions we have are very very important in today's world because other people will, will go out and build those things or other people will be inspired to go and build those things so young people like educate yourself about how the system works currently study economics study political systems uh know your shit as we say but yeah don't rest your hopes in these systems saving the future they're built for a time that has already passed mm -hmm. for a different we time need, we need different systems we need different things in place and use your confidence and believe in yourself to go build those wow thank you very very good advice very interesting Sushin Saganipo, thank you so much for joining me on the Edges of Lean. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for arranging uh, this talk. It was really, really helpful. This is Bella Engelbach, and I'd like to thank Sushin Saganipo for being my guest on the Edges of Lean. Are you confident you are hearing everyone's ideas? How are you reaching out? We'd love to hear from you. Find Sushin at sway.io or on LinkedIn. Find me on LinkedIn or at leanforhumans.com or comment wherever you watch or listen. Subscribe and tell a friend about the edges of lean. Please join me in exploring more of the edges of lean. There's a lot to learn. And check out my friends in the Lean Communicators community at leancommunicators.com. You'll find more podcasts and videos with lots of great new content every week. And hey, there are some new podcasts on there too. The Edges of Lean is written and produced by Bella Engelbach with support from Podcast Inc. This is a Lean for Humans production.